Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number 48, which corresponds to the week of November 13, 2023. This week, we're going to do COVID postmortem part two. It's a bit long, so we're not going to have a part two section and then the recipe of the week. So I just wanted to say thank you to all the listeners. It's been super fun doing this podcast for now going on two and a half years. I get an unbelievable amount of joy in doing the research, interviewing the guests, and releasing the data. It's been a blast. And um, I don't know how many people listen in total. I get metrics. I don't know how true they are. It says roughly 240 people a day download. And it says that the downloads are actually like 90% listened to. So that's sort of super cool. But I don't know anything more than that. Either way, what I just wanted to say is thank you for listening because it is super fun for me to be allowed to release this information into the world. Um, I, you know, I learned from Paul Smolin how to do this, and it's quite amazing in this modern world that I need no team behind me to do this, right? He gave me the full story on what it's like to be able to go out, research how to do a podcast, and actually do it, interview people post it using GarageBand and Blueberry and these other apps that I had no idea existed. And it's phenomenal. It's a very cool world. It's the democratization of information is what I think it is because anybody can now go out and put out information. And if they do a good job, really research the topic, the information can be incredibly valuable to the listeners. And for me, again, I hope it's valuable to you. I try my best to give the information that I would think you'd want to know, and frankly, it's the stuff that I believe is cutting edge to how we're going to become better humans, which is frankly all I really care about. And in, in that vein, it's the kids that I care the most about, and you all know that. So with that being said, let's get busy with this week's podcast, and we're going to do postmortem number two. But while we're at it, free thoughts this week, mindfulness, the ability to be present moment in all things. The ability to be conscious of choice, whether it is a bite of food, a breath of air, or a deep thought. Society is pushing us to mindless passive existence with endless loops of screen-based content. Passive watching. Somebody else do something. TikTok. Instagram. Netflix. All of these things, although beautiful and take nothing away from the content that's great, has forced an entire generation of young kids, and actually many folks in my generation, the previous and post, are doing this too. But we default ourselves into a world of just not being because we're too busy watching, right? So we're not really feeling, we're not really imagining, we're not really spending our time like we used to in semi-boredom, which is where the spark of idea comes from. So that being said, I'm really speaking to the kids primarily and the parents of the kids to fight the narrative to be in this state of existence. Put your bare feet in the grass, feel the earth, stare at the horizon, spend some time in contemplation. Find your inner peace. Try not to live so passively if you can. And again, I'm not blaming anyone who's living passively. I do it too. I fall into Netflix at times. I fall into these things as well. So this is not me throwing stones at you, more me erasing awarenesses as to what we all need to do, myself included. Think about the process and breathe. Okay. Let's go into the deep reality that is the 
Postmortem Part 2 of the COVID-19 Pandemic. For me, this comes down to the simple philosophy that we are yet to see any reasonable <laughs> information published on the story of why COVID was so devastating in the United States as opposed to other countries. We have statistics as to the why. We had problems with the government releasing statistics by demographics, which is a whole other issue, but we'll get into that. Post-COVID population health data has shown us that humans that chronically consume more meat, sugar, animal products, and highly processed foods were associated with more death and morbidity if they contracted early versions of COVID-19. The effect of consuming sugar products on mortality was considerable, and obesity has affected increased death rates and reduced recovery rates. Multiple studies listed in the newsletter if you want to look at those. SARS-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is now known to be an infectious disease with features of a human disease that span the spectrum from asymptomatic to profoundly dysregulated immune system responses, leading to both aggressive inflammation and autoimmunity in the moderately to severe affected persons. It is now very clear that the vast majority of these significantly affected individuals have a high burden of antecedent systemic inflammation in the form of chronic diseases of aging and poor lifestyle choices over time that predispose the immune system to poor pathogen killing and upregulate inflammatory and autoreactive features. The poor early innate immune-based pathogen killing allows for increased viral loads, leading to time-based systemic viral immune reactions that we see as hyperinflammation and cellular damage at the macro level. The second category of poor COVID-related outcomes comes from genetic single nucleotide mutations of immune viral pathogen recognition and killing. These two realities can coexist, leading to massive disease burdens. In this piece, as written now that I'm putting in audio form, I want to explore the current scientific evidence behind this disease and how it so tragically tore through the United States with such a high death burden for immune-naive humans during the ancestral SARS-2 wave and the subsequent Delta wave. Omicron appears to be a log-step lower risk for all based on a priori immunity and the loss of over a million high-risk individuals in a very short 18 months, and the risk is incredibly lower now with Omicron. The denominator of at-risk individuals has completely shrunk, and Omicron is not as deadly to the immune-competent T and B-cell SARS-2 knowledgeable humans that it was in the past, and it's as simple as that. In reality, this is very technical information we're going to go through. Thus, I'm stating so in advance of the length and complexity. But I think it's super important that we understand what's really going on, not just buying into the dogma that's given to us from politics or political medical doctors from on high. After three years of science research and data mining, I am attempting to put together what I consider to be a coherent hypothesis as to the pathophysiology of this novel and fascinating infectious disease for the prevention possibilities that could have been and should be moving forward. The origins of this disease may never be known, as the natural origins theory has not turned up a causative organism, and the lab leak theory has significant data behind it, but is unprovable at the present time due to China's unwillingness to share evidence early in the pandemic by report. The article by Catherine Eban is a must-read. I've talked about it before. If you haven't read it, you got to read it. It was published in 2021 in Vanity Fair. The lab leak theory, though, for me, is... The answer. There's more fire on the lab leak side, but that is what it is and little more. You can say that until proven otherwise. I believe that this whole mess started in a lab 
And I hope that the powers that be are learning from this big mistake. Frankly, I'm not going to hold my breath because I don't want to turn blue. But ultimately, we are dealing with a virus now that is mutated naturally from the original way it was made with the gain-of-function mutation research that was done between what is thought to be the United States and the lab in Wuhan. What do we really know today? Well, you know me, I'm a first principles guy, and also that nature and God do not make mistakes when it comes to how we were made. The issue is more aligned with what we are doing to make this perfect creation that is the human dysfunctional from an immune perspective. In normal times, a human will balance the need for inflammation as a right of pathogen killing against self-preservation from excessive damage from this same inflammation. It's a balancing act. You want the inflammation because it kills, but you don't want it to kill you. When all goes according to plan, the immune system revs up robustly at the first sign of a novel viral pathogen causing immediate action of viral killing through the innate immune system primarily driven by local white blood cells. Inflammation-based mechanisms like inflammasomes as well as other systems like complement. complement. Then once the pathogen is adequately controlled, the immune system returns to baseline activity and cleans up all the inflammatory debris through the lymphatic system and rebuilds any damaged cellular systems. It is a beautiful and dynamic system full of flux and resolution, leading to health long-term. It's an educated system that learns as it progresses based on exposures to the exposome, the outside world. So what is SARS-2 actually? Well, it's actually a 120 nanometer RNA virus that enters the body primarily as an aerosol droplet via the oral and nasal passages and minimally by the ocular fecal route. It primarily travels to the lungs and attaches to ciliated epithelial cells as well as to the type 2 pneumocyte via an antigen converting enzyme 2 receptor. The H2R that decreases in number as you go farther into the smaller lung tubes toward the alveoli or the air sacs. This virus uses our protease enzymes to cleave a portion of its spike protein off, allowing it to fuse with the attack cell's surface, thereby injecting its RNA into our cells for replication and further spread throughout the body via the bloodstream, or what is called viremia. As the SARS-2 virus grabs the ACE2 receptor, fusing with the cell and taking it over, it takes approximately 10 minutes to enter the susceptible cells and about 10 hours to reproduce inside these infected cells. It could then release 100 virions per infected cell. And the process repeats itself until the immune system catches up to the virus, slowing replication, reversing inflammation. If the type 2 pneumocyte cells are damaged with the alveoli distal air sacs, then the normally produced angiotensin converting to enzyme, ACE2, that is normally cellularly protective in the lung, an anti-inflammatory that becomes less available for the protection of the lung tissues, receptors are bound, and the cells die. Thus, damaged epithelial cells in the lung proximally cause local inflammation, and the distal type 2 pneumocytes lose function, causing some lung collapse. This is the beginning of what we call normally acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, which was seen in SARS-1 and MERS. We presume that this was also occurring in SARS-2. When enough of these small air sacs collapse, air exchange becomes impossible. Patients respond by increasing the rate of breathing and using accessory muscles to draw deeper and deeper breaths until this is not enough to maintain oxygen levels. Essentially, your lungs collapse to the point that effective oxygen exchange is lost and life is not sustainable without mechanical ventilation. 
If the inflammation and organ damage worsens, then ventilation may not be enough and death ensues. However, this is not what we are really seeing in the intensive care units nationwide during the pandemic. An autopsy analysis is post-mortem. Part of the difference was originally shown by the group led by Michael Garvin at Oak Ridge Laboratories in Tennessee, as they discovered in the new bradykinin theory. What is this theory? The renin-angiotensin system is the vasopressor controller that is involved in raising and lowering blood pressure from your kidney. ACE2 converts angiotensin 2 to angiotensin 1. Thus, if ACE2 activity is reduced, angiotensin 2 levels rise, and they in turn signal through the AT1 receptor the actions vasoconstriction, interstitial fibrosis, macrophage activation, and the production of inflammatory cells, which induce more endothelial dysfunction and increase in pulmonary permeability, leading to pulmonary edema. Reduced expression of ACE2 from damaged type 2 pneumocytes reduces the breakdown of bradykinin, a chemical that naturally induces blood vessel dilation and permeability, leading to local leakage of fluid into the spaces during the healing process that requires clotting or inflammation. Under normal conditions, this process allows immune and inflammatory mediators of healing to be mobilized to the areas of infection or injury, where the dilation and leakage are of self-limited and the result in an inflammatory response is resolution and complete activity. As I said, these are not mistakes. These are natural recommendations made by the immune system to us that we don't even have any control over that's happening to change the ability to kill a pathogen. However, in this case, the excess bradykinin is counterproductive and leads to more edema, inflammation, and fibrosis. More inflammatory cytokines follow this event, leading to a circular event with ever more inflammatory cytokines infiltrating the tissue and compounding the fluid-based inflammatory response that eventually drowns a sick patient, which they found early on in the pandemic. The ventilation wasn't helping as much as flipping the patient over and letting gravity pull the fluid down and allowing more breathing ability. Thus, what we previously thought was alveolar collapse is now really a hyaluronic acid-based jelly-like inflammatory fluid infiltration, which reduces other, our oxygen exchange capacity and feels like drowning. Autopsy results also showed these changes, confirming the different airway pathology in SARS-2 versus SARS-1. Somewhere along the way, in a subset of very sick patients, the inflammatory cytokine reaction is triggering a hypercoagulable state that we see as deep venous clotting, strokes, or organ damage. It is thought that the clotting cascade begins to cause trouble in the lung tissue before becoming systemic and causing massive damage all around. The markers of this disease are elevated D-dimers and fibrinogen. So the latest pathophysiologic understanding for me is a hypercoagulable state in COVID-19. The COVID-19-induced coagulopathy centers around the bidirectional crosstalk between inflammation and thrombosis is occurring. COVID-19 leads to a severe inflammatory response that originates in the lung epithelial cells and pneumocytes. The subsequent release of inflammatory cytokines leads to activation of epithelial cells, monocytes, and macrophages, all part of the immune system. Direct infection of the endothelial cells leads to endothelial activation and dysfunction, expression of tissue factor and platelet activation, and increasing levels of von Willebrand's factor and factor VIII, all of which contribute to thrombin generation and big fibrin clot formation. Thrombin, in turn, causes more inflammation through its effects on platelets, which promote neutrophil extracellular trap formation in the neutrophil areas. It also activates endothelium, 
through a protease-activated receptor, which leads to release of complement component C5A that further activates monocytes. So what you're basically hearing here is once the systemic part of this happens in the bloodstream, we're starting to see a massive upregulation of thrombosis or fibrin clot formation because the body again thinks it's under attack and is trying to wall some of this stuff off. And then those areas then continue to progress to adding in this incredibly powerful immune killer called a neutrophil extracellular trap, which is causing massive damage, which then again leads to bad outcomes. The other big known problems in this infection is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has the ability to infect or enter circulating or stationary immune cells, causing a rapid decline in white blood cell function and number. This leads to less viral surveillance and killing ability, leaving the virus free to replicate at will all over the body. This is another reason for the corresponding extraordinary release of proteins called cytokines that inflame all local tissues, worsening the disease in multiple organs. The massive volume of circulating viral particles that travel far and wide are attacking and targeting organs that express ACE2 receptors such as the lungs, hearts, kidneys, and gastrointestinal tract. The average time to illness is seven days after exposure. This essentially is a time that it takes for the virus to go through these phases of replication and spread. During the initial stages of the illness, most individuals have normal immune responses with robust white blood cell mobilization and viral killing, leading to mild or completely asymptomatic disease that happens in many, 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 if not most individuals. However, we now know that individuals that develop moderate to severe disease have reduced white blood cell responses and reduced T and B cell activity. Whether this is genetic or lifestyle related or both is patient dependent. We also know from studies to date that inherent genetic defects in immune pathogen pattern recognition receptors puts even healthy individuals at risk because of lost viral surveillance and killing ability. But this is a really rare event. Let's look at this event from the perspective of the innate immune system. The innate immune system is the first line of defense against an invading pathogen. The innate immune system is comprised of pattern recognition receptors that detect fragments of viruses, bacteria, and parasites, and then signal cells to come in for a killing party. The pattern recognition receptors are divided into PAMPs and DAMPs. PAMPs, or pathogen-associated molecular patterns, are specifically set up to recognize protein fragments from pathogens. DAMPs, or damage-associated molecular patterns, are specifically set up to recognize damaged human cell parts as a danger self-signal. Right? So if you spill part of your nucleus, your DNA out, your body knows t- cells are getting damaged. So that's actually triggered to get more immune cells in to kill whatever's around that cell that's damaging it. This damp response signals a high-level warning that your cells are being attacked unless it's a huge response. Toll-like receptors are a type of pattern recognition receptor that bind to their pathogen target when visualized in the body, which in turn leads to the production of gamma interferon, or different kinds of interferons, cytokines, and chemokines, which all are signaling molecules to enhance local immune killing via white blood cells. In the case of SARS-2, The toll-like receptor recognizes the virus and sends out interferons to recruit killer white blood cells to the area, block viral replication and activate the dendritic cells and adaptive immune activity, which we know of as circulating antibodies that develop over time. When infected cells die and release more virus in high number, the cellular debris and viral particles are recognized by the PAMPs and DAMPs, inducing a robust immune local response that has a recurrent autocrine effect which is it has a loop on itself making more and more inflammation. 
Type 1 and 3 interferons activate and upregulate the function of innate immune system tissue resident cells, including the dendritic cells, alveolar and interstitial tissue resident macrophages, and natural killer cells. For example, monocytes and macrophages phagocytize the infected cells and induce type 1 interferon responses and pro-inflammatory molecules. Natural killer cells recognize peptides expressed on the surface of infected cells and destroy them via direct cytotoxicity through perforins and granzyme B. All immune cells release cytokines and chemokines such as, among others, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, and these cytokines amplify and propagate the immune responses by recruiting more cells in the following time order. Neutrophils are recruited first within the first 24 hours, peaking around day three. Then the dendritic and monocyte cells come next. T and B cells appear later around day five, which begins the adaptive phase of immunity, producing antibodies. It takes six to 10 days to build a functional adaptive immune response through priming. This delay for education is critical for developing clone-specific T and B cell repertoire, which are targeted directly to the pathogen's proteins. And that's what we have when we have antibody responses that help us not get sick when we see the virus again. SARS-2 in certain individuals has the ability to delay the interferon response, which appears to be worse with advancing age. The mechanisms utilized by the coronaviruses to evade the initial immune recognition and response via interferons can be divided into three categories. Avoidance of the recognition by the pattern recognition receptors, suppression of the generation of type 1 and 3 interferons, and reduction of interferon signaling. Other individuals, mostly men, have been shown to have autoantibodies against interferons, making their viral response weak and allowing for a permissive viral environment. Bad news. Furthermore, the reduced interferon signaling reduces the interferon-stimulated genes, ISGs, which directly messes with the antigen-presenting cells, like macrophages, ability to recognize, engulf, and kill the virus. It also reduces the activity of the major histocompatibility complex 1 and 2's ability to adequately present the viral proteins for adaptive recognition, leading to worsened antibody responses. So, let's do a little recap. So we now know that we have this picture of a very clever virus that was probably engineered in a lab, has developed methods for reducing our ability to recognize it, kill it, and then develop memory against it for the future. In the long term, these evasion methods are not functional for a healthy person as they eventually overwhelm the virus and revert to normalcy. The kicker is that the already inflamed individual, and this is where we're going to go with the food story, with autoantibodies against self-derived innate immune mechanisms like interferons, has big problems. They are less likely to catch up to the virus and survive as the initial immune response is so weak that the viral particle number gets so large that the immune response goes into microwars all over the body, leading to an exhausted state. This has been shown by the lower number of white blood cells and the weak function of those present seen in the very sick. Thus, it is imperative that we have a very robust initial innate immune response right out of the gate like the infants and young children do. As the process progresses, more cellular contents are spilled into the local tissue space, releasing far more damps, self-tissue proteins, which in turn signals more formation of neutrophil extracellular traps, or NETs, and inflammasomes. NETs form when a group of actively recruited neutrophils, early attendees to the process, form a NET-like trap. Neutrophils are the first line of defense in the fight against pathogens, and that is the same in this case. During an infection, the cell's protective duty is performed through phagocytosis, 
degranulation of antibacterial proteins and generation of reactive oxygen species and the recruitment and activation of other immunocompetent cells. These powerful neutrophils have the ability to generate extracellular neutrophil traps. The structure of the nets is made up of thin, smooth strands of DNA. Yes, your DNA, it's amazing. Trapping the SARS-2 virus within the net of DNA fibers, preventing their spread. It also allows the concentration of antimicrobial factors in the neutrophils at this site as the infection grows. This is a very powerful way to control an infection early on. However, it becomes exceedingly problematic when it persists for a long time based on the viral load and autocrine feedback loop of damps from cellular damage. This persistence of NETS inflammation causes a systemic, significant systemic damage leading to increased SARS-2 morbidity and mortality. In this same line of thinking, our innate immune systems have a fire-based system called pyrins. Chief among them is the inflammasome. By its name, we see it as a robust source of inflammation at a local tissue site where a PRR called NLRP3 gets activated by the presence of the virus, ATP, cellular debris, and more. The inflammasome then assembles and releases cell wall pore-forming materials, which are used to insert gasdermin, ILB1, IL-18 into the cell. The downstream effect is cellular apoptosis or death, as well as the further formation of nets and activation of the complement cascade clotting system, leading to thrombosis and cardiovascular compromise, the hallmark of COVID disease, and is vastly different from other SARS and MERS infections of the past. Okay, so let's assume that the innate immune system process goes according to plan and is not overactivated. What happens next? The adaptive immune system gets activated and begins the process of developing antibodies as well as memory cells for future recognition. For this process to occur correctly, a certain cell type is critical, the T-cell. The T-cell is responsible for ushering viral and other information back and forth between the antigen-presenting cells like monocytes and macrophages of the innate immune system and the B-cells of the adaptive immune system that eventually allow for the long-lived plasma and memory B-cells to form get educated, and persist for years. This is the process by which we are able to see the same virus again in the future with little to no issue this time around. The memory B and T cells are prepped to pump out immune-fighting antibodies targeted to the virus in question. The resolution of the circulating antibodies after a few months as with SARS-2, is due to the fact that in the absence of active disease, the immune system does not want to carry large loads of antibodies against the millions of pathogens and proteins in the world. This is energetically taxing and would cause problems with excess proteins in the blood, leading possibly to coagulation. T-cells are divided into two types, CD4 or helper and CD8, which are toxic. The CD4 cells receive viral information from the antigen-presenting cell, educating it on the specific type of pathogen. That information is then swapped with a B cell, leading to antibody-producing plasma cells, or memory B cells, specific for SARS-2. The CD8-positive T cells take the same information and targets the SARS-CoV-2 infected cells directly for destruction. These T cells release interferons and cytokines to enhance the local pathogen killing by recruiting neutrophils and other monocytes. Simultaneously, the amazing key to our long-lived immunity occurs in the local lymph nodes. The initially programmed B cells get further education in the germinal centers of the local and systemic lymph nodes, whereby the progress, excuse me, they progress through layers of learning like rings on a tree heading to the center. 
A slight shift in the protein structure in either direction mimics nature's natural viral mutagenesis in lockstep unless the virus has a wholesale large sequence amino acid protein change as was seen with the Omicron variant. This activity further expands the ability of the autoantibodies, the antibodies, to recognize viral particles that may have slightly mutated which occurs with most viral diseases and definitely is occurring with SARS-2. The end result of this intricate process is the production of a wide array of B cells that are capable of recognizing pathogens and its mutant cousins rapidly leading to a rapid killing and a survival via antibody production. The first antibodies produced are of the IgA class during the first week of infection, followed by IgM over week two and finally IgG after week three. In the case of SARS-2, the antibodies are primarily directed against the spike protein's receptor binding site and the nucleocapsid. The antibody against the spike protein prevents the virus from attaching to the ACE2 receptor and replicating. In babies and infants, the antibody response is primarily only against the spike protein as the infection is cleared rapidly in this age group. It was a beautiful thing that kids didn't get really sick with this virus. This is the main reason that, you know, we're still not seeing any major burden in children. This is a normal adaptive immune response, but what happens in an abnormal state? In an aggressive disease state, we need to further subdivide the CD4 cells into different types as the main player in the process as they migrate to the sites of the infection to begin this education and mobilization process. The CD4 positive T cells are divided into a couple types, but for the purposes of this paper, we're gonna to stick to the T regulator cell, T helper cell one, T helper cell two, and T helper cell 17. The T regulator cell is the primary player in immune dampening and tolerance to non-pathogenic proteins. It helps control the whole system. Th1 is involved in intracellular pathogen killing of organisms like herpes viruses and SARS-2. Th2 is involved in macrobe killing like parasites. Th17 is involved in extracellular pathogens like bacteria. The balance of these cells can dictate the effective response to a pathogen. The dysfunctional side of each Th cell polarity state could be as follows. Th1 excess leads to uncontrolled inflammation. Th2 excess leads to allergies and atopic diseases like asthma. Th17 leads to autoimmunity. And finally, Treg dysfunction leads to immune tolerance breaks. In COVID disease, these innate and adaptive responses are rendered dysfunctional by the precursor lifestyle inflammatory abnormalities. And again, the key word here being lifestyle induced. We don't have genetic defects of our immune system in general for most of the population. We do things to mess it up. Host genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms of pattern recognition receptors and interferons can be messed up. And viral induced lymphocyte and cytokine changes are noted. Chronic hyperglycemia, which is excessive sugar intake, excessive fructose metabolism issues, hypoxia or low oxygen states, toxic, toxic exposures, and much more that occur over time are leading to alterations in immune activity that are counter to effective killing of pathogens. When investigators have looked at mild, moderate, and severe COVID-19 cases, they've noted change occurring between mild and moderate disease. They find that unusual cell types, including exhausted CD4 T cells, being tired, cytotoxic, cytotoxic CD4 T C cells, and proliferative exhausted CD8 cells are noted. The presence of these exhausted cells is a marker of poor outcome and portends immune dysregulation in general. 
To me, this is a marker of baseline overactivity of immune surveillance and killing, as, pathog- as Patrice Connie calls low-level endotoxemia from microbial intestinal dysbiosis from chronic poor eating. These same exhausted cells initially pre-exhaustion secrete interferons and cytokines like IL-2 and tumor necrosis factor, further increasing local pathogen destruction and polarizing the T-cell towards T-CD4-positive helper T-type 2 patterns, which is reserved normally for attacks on parasites and is involved with histamine release, a hallmark of poor COVID outcome. The polarity switch that occurs post and pre-infection are believed to be main drivers of adaptive immune dysregulation that we see playing out clinically. There is also evidence that increased IL-17 production by Th17 cells in COVID-19 patients has broad pro-inflammatory effects through the upregulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines like GCSF, IL-1-beta, IL-6, TNF-alpha, as well as chemokines like MIP-2A, IL-8, IL-10, IP-10, and MIP-3A and matrix metalloproteinases, all of which lead to uncontrolled immune cell recruitment and signaling, which we see as profound systemic inflammation, organ damage, and finally death by coagulation or clotting, vasculitis, and pulmonary failure, all of which we talked about already. So the TH17 polarity change is also associated with COVID-19 autoimmunity. Thus, we see that human immunologically polarized towards a TH2 or TH17 type pre-infection are likely to have worse outcome overall due to poor viral surveillance and killing capacity early on, coupled to an overindulgent immune reactivity afterwards, which has caused a robust replication of the virus, which then gets throughout the whole body and causes main problems. The resultant inflammatory response overwhelms the entire immune system, leading to exhaustion and tissue damage through organ systems, ultimately leading to severe death. So, What and how does this have to do with food? The last piece for me of this entire pathological and pathophysiological story resides in the precursor risk factors for poor pathogen clearance and worsening inflammatory responses. Epidemiologically, it is very clear that 95% or more of the COVID-related deaths were in groups that had either advanced age and comorbid diseases related to poor lifestyle choices, as the standard American diet, sloth, toxin exposure, eating excessive calories, inadequate sleep, mental stress, and other issues that were present for periods of time that drive dysfunctional shifts in T helper cell activity, autoantibody production, systemic inflammation. These changes are present in the host prior to infectious viral exposure, setting the stage for poor viral surveillance, killing capacity, and later hyperinflammation. I think, to me, this is the key of this entire narrative, the entire COVID pandemic. What could we control and what can we control in the future in order to surveil, recognize, and then kill the SARS-2 virus before it is the opportunity to cause a bradykine and cytokine storm? We can control our lifestyle choices that enhance immune function and prevent exposure. It is that simple. The rest is relatively out of our control. After having a dysfunctional discussion over the pandemic with one or two of my ICU colleagues about the efficacy of lifestyle modification and the lack of need to push it, I am even more determined to push this message. The message that modern medicine is here to save you is not lost on over a million people that are now no longer here because of COVID. Reductionist medicine of a pill for a cure is fading into a new medicine that's rooted into the why, not the just is. Could they have reduced their risk? Had they known and chosen to change the antecedent physiology, 
that put them at risk in the first place. I resoundingly think so, for most. Understanding the pathogenesis of the virus has taken some time, but this understanding is the key to making educated choices to support immune responses. The bottom line is twofold with regard to prevention of SARS-2. First, support immune surveillance by making sure that the immune system is fine-tuned to recognize and destroy the virus early on, so that it has minimal opportunity to replicate and hijack our immune system. Secondly, support survival if you get ill and the virus has the ability to stop its replication. This means that we want to be adequately and have functional responses from natural killer cells and T helper 1 type cells. Then you need a low starting inflammation point so that when your immune system does start to get inflamed and attack the virus, you're not pushed into place of overinflammation. Now we know that obesity, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes are epidemiologic risk factors for negative COVID outcome. We also know that these same diseases are associated with significant flares in innate immune activation and inflammasome activity. Therefore, one obvious leap of faith seems to be that if we could reduce the triggers of baseline inflammasome activity, then we would mitigate some of the downstream risk if we contract SARS-2. For example, reducing fructose and high fructose corn syrup consumption would reduce the metabolite uric acid, a known trigger of inflammasome formation and activity system-wide. However, the tricky part is that low uric acid levels at the onset of the COVID infection portended a negative outcome as uric acid is also a signaling molecule and a very powerful antioxidant to handle inflammation once started. This again is an immune system that is so beautiful but so complicated. Elevated uric acid over time is a big issue as it damages the mitochondria of the liver, muscles, kidneys, inducing adipose deposition, insulin resistance, high blood pressure, and nephron damage. Inflammasomes also worsen cardiac coronary artery damage, which is seen with many COVID patients. Pyroptosis is a term used to describe cell death globally in a human body via the simultaneous activation of pyroptosis, apoptosis, and necroptosis in the same cell, leading to its inflammatory death. This appears to happen in a subset of severe COVID-19 patients who had severe obesity and inflammation. For me, the overconsumption of fructose as a liquid primarily is a root cause of immune dysregulation based on my reading of the literature. The greatest risk for all-cause human mortality appears to be the overconsumption of refined foods that are loaded with poor quality fats and huge glucose loads that drive insulin resistance via diacylglycerol inhibition of the transcription of the muscle's GLUT4 receptor as well as fat deposition of the secondary hyperglycemia insulin response. Large volume fructose ingestion in these same refined foods, drives fat deposition via the metabolite uric acid through its historical beneficial survival pathways in the mitochondria and liver. These processes lead to obesity, which is notorious for human immunologically activated fat cells that slant towards the dysfunctional inflammatory macrophages. T cells that are activated are notorious for presenting antigen to the immune system for reactivity, leading to autoimmunity. These same fat cells also drive inflammasome responses and suppress natural killer activity, as is well noted in diabetics, the poster humans for hypoglycemia in general. There are many other nutrition-based issues to discuss, but for the sake of this piece, I will only add this. Corn and grain-fed animals are loaded with pro-inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids that are potentially driving excessive arachidonic acid production and cytokine responses. 
These are many other nutrition-based events conspire to reduce viral surveillance and killing while paradoxically increasing inflammation through inflammasome formation and cytokine release. This is the perfect storm for a bad outcome. This is only a small representation of the many changes that lifestyle modification could have on immune function and COVID risk as discussed over the last two years. The other big piece of lifestyle story is the human intestinal microbiome. Modern lifestyle issues like sloth, standard American diet eating patterns, sleep deprivation, mental stress, C-section deliveries, formula feeding patterns, and more are all tied to dysbiotic pro-inflammatory microbiomes. The dysbiosis is known to cause elevations in systemic levels of translocated bacterial lipopolysaccharides, or fat sugar molecules called LPS, which was found to be high in COVID victims. The SARS-2 virus can bind to bacterial LPS molecule in the circulation. From PLOS pathogens, we note viruses can bind to bacteria or directly to free lipopolysaccharide, thereby enhancing their attachment to ACE2 receptors on the surface of host cells. Such interaction can dramatically increase the viral infectivity and promote the development of hypercytokinemia. A formal demonstration that SARS-CoV-2 can directly interact with LPS through its S-protein is known. Whereas neither S-protein nor LPS alone causes an activation of the pro-inflammatory nuclear factor kappa B. The combination of S-protein with even low levels of LPS dose dependently increases NF-kappa B activation and the subsequent cytokine response in monocytic cells in vitro. That was written by Kruglikov et al., 2021, in PLOS Pathogens. That was a full quote. Reversing the microbiome dysbiosis is critical and achievable by reversing the dysfunctional lifestyle choices. I truly think that the virus is a wake-up call for all of us to eat whole foods that are minimally processed, mostly vegetables, fruits, legumes, seeds, and nuts, spiked with wild-caught, natural-raised meats, fish, and eggs. Sleep more, stress less, exercise and move often, laugh, live, and prepare for the future. That is a dramatic recipe for inflammation reduction and protection. For more on the to-do here, I will read from an excellent paper by Dr. Yannick and his colleagues, eliminating functions that can drive non-purposeful inflammation and related dysregulatory impacts on immune function. The patient's inflammatory baseline status is influenced by pre-existing inflammatory conditions, as we stated. An opportunity presents itself in the non-infected patient to reduce non-purposeful contributions to their level of inflammation to mitigate the risk of patient entering an escalated inflammation phase should they become infected. What should we do? 1. Sleep. Healthy sleep is anti-inflammatory, restorative, and promotes normal viral killing. Poor quality sleep yields increased inflammation and increased T-cell polarization towards the Th type 2 response at the expense of necessary Th type 1. Sound sleep hygiene practices are fundamental for promoting healthy sleep. Turn off your lights at night. Follow the sun's and the moon's rhythms as best you can. Put away your phone at night. When you awaken, spend time outside looking at the sunrise or risen sun to active, activate your natural circadian biology. 2. Stress. Mental stress chemistry is inherently inflammatory. Cortisol rises with stress and is well known to immune suppress over a chronic period of time. Stress biochemistry should be addressed by techniques known to decrease the stress response, including mindfulness-based activities, stress-reduced exercise, relaxing music, art therapy, nature walks, earthing, biofeedback, and, frankly, whatever works for you. Three, glycemic control. 
We all know this, but do we do it? As stated earlier, insulin resistance and impaired glucose tolerance are associated with inflammation and are contributing factor that puts diabetics and other people at risk for COVID-19 bad outcomes. Monitor blood sugar levels if you are at risk for or have diabetes, keeping them tightly regulated over time. Avoid ultra-processed foods, liquid sugar, quote, white foods, and generally foods that your grandmother wouldn't recognize. Four, other dietary factors in addition to those contributing to disrupting glycemic control should also be addressed. High-quality nutrient-dense foods that focus on eating whole plants are rich in polyphenols, phytonutrients that are foundational to decreasing overall inflammation. Reduce or eliminate inflammation-promoting inflammation foods like chemically added, added food, chemical foods, right? Those that have um, emulsifiers in them, trans fats, oxidized fats, and added sugars. Bad news. Five, microbiome balance. Both the lung and the GI tract have normal microbiome capabilities and the complex relationship between the microbiota and the lung and the GI tract and its bidirectional influence with the immune system have been reviewed in the past in many of my newsletters. But just know that dysregulation of the balance of the GI microbiome and the lung microbiome have been shown to be a source of systemic inflammation. Intestinal metabolism of dietary fiber and the resulting increase in short-chain fatty acids is huge, specifically propionate, which has been shown to enhance hemopoietic generation of macrophages and DCs seeding in the lungs. The, dis, the dendritic cells, the DCs, had increased phagocytotic capacity and decreased capacity to induce Th2 bias in the lungs T cells, an effect that reduced Th2 inflammation. Exacerbation of chronic lung diseases have been proposed to be episodes of lung microbial dysbiosis. The status of the lung microbiome may be especially important in situations requiring the use of ventilators as the depletion of lung microbiota by broad-spectrum antibiotics prior to high tidal volume ventilation was shown to be render mice in a translational model more susceptible to developing ventilator-induced lung injury. Six, physical activity has long been known to be incredibly important for physiologic mechanisms, definitely important for glucose metabolism, definitely important for immune health. Seven, support levels of vitamins and minerals with known immunological roles. We've talked about that in many newsletters. Whew, man, I'm tired of reading that. That was a lot. Thank you for bearing with me, though. I know that was a deep dive in immunology. It's just big, big stuff. We got to get ourselves ready for the next pandemic if it does happen to us in our lifetime. I hope this helps explain the why. I care so much about lifestyle medicine, and I hope it helps you try and make some decisions that are more counter- I mean, more in line with health and especially for your children. All right, folks, that's it. Song of the week. Why My Guitar Gently Weeps by the Beatles. I think that was written by George Harrison. Great song. All right, as always, hug those kids. Have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Be well.